Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on MovieHouseMemories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. You're listening to a classic episode of Lunchtime Movie Review on the MHM Podcast Network from our original set of reviews from August 2011 to December 2012. And we are the children of the 80s. Back to the lunchtime movie review, where we review the movies from our childhood. I'm Matt. I'm Bill. I'm the Sausage King. <laughs> and I'm Patrick. I always think of you within a sausage party, actually, Chris. So, <laughs> well, as long as sausage is involved, it's all right. <laughs> and this week we're bringing John Hughes's beloved Ferris Bueller's Day Off. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Garage Glass. Won't stop a Ferrari, but it'll look pretty darn good going through it. Garage Glass. All right. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I wish we had someone from Chicago that could do this. Hey, I could do that. (laughs) Bill, actually from Chicago. That's right. Give us Ferris Bueller. Well, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Is actually more like a love story to the city of Chicago, written by John Hughes, directed by John Hughes, and starring basically the city of Chicago. Ferris Bueller is a young kid who gets away with everything. He always has, and he seemingly always will. And one day, Ferris wakes up and decides, today's too nice a day to go to school. So, with the help of his always sick buddy Cameron, he decides to drag Sloan, his girlfriend, out of school and take a joyride around the city. They borrow Cameron's father's 1961 Ferrari 250 GT and pull Sloan out of school, convincing Edward Rooney that Sloan's grandfather had died. Once they get the Ferrari, Sloan and Cameron and Ferris begin their whirlwind tour of the city, taking in sights such as the immortal Wrigley Field, home of the soon-to-be world champion Chicago Cubs. Hey, it's got to happen eventually. They visit the Sears Tower, the Art Institute of Chicago, the Merck, and take part in the Von Steuben Day Parade, where Ferris treats the audience to lip-synced versions of Don Shane and the Beatles' Twist and Shout. During their jaunt around town, they also happen upon one of the finest dining establishments in the city of Chicago, Shea Key, where they partake of pancreas. Because who doesn't love a good pancreas meal when you're out playing hooky from school? Meanwhile, Ferris's principal, Mr. Rooney, is on the hunt. He's convinced that Ferris is faking and wants to catch him in the act. He tries to catch Ferris at home, eventually breaking in before getting chased away by Jeannie, who's also come home to catch him. Jeannie's Ferris's older sister, and she does not like the fact that Ferris seems to get away with everything, and she gets away with nothing. The culmination of Jeannie's day takes place with a makeout session with Charlie Sheen, who's a drug addict. Hey, go figure, Charlie Sheen playing a drug addict in a movie. Who thought that one up? 
At the end of the day, there's a reconciliation among all the interested parties in the movie. Ferris and Jeannie kiss and make up, figuratively, of course. They are brother and sister. Cameron kicks his father's Ferrari through the window of the garage and decides he'll finally, once and for all, face the music with his old man and sit down and have a nice chat with him. And Ferris and Sloan make out as they decide that they will, in fact, try the ever-failing attempt at a long-distance relationship while Sloan is still in high school and Ferris is away at college. The movie ends with the classic, oh yeah, playing in the background as Edward Rooney boards a school bus, beaten up, disheveled, kicked the crap as he sits down next to a girl and eats a gummy bear. A fitting end to a fitting day. That's Ferris. Wow. Life indeed moves pretty fast. (laughs) (laughs) Well done, Bill. Well done. Yeah, the first Um, time someone's kept the voice all the way through the summer. This is our third (laughs) podcast in uh, about as many weeks that we've, uh, (laughs) there's been a voice for the uh, summary, but he, he did keep it through. Well, you know, being from Chicago, when I go back to visit, I actually start slipping into the accent a little bit. I've got an aunt, and she, uh, for a long time, she actually worked as a waitress at Mike Dicka's restaurant. And she's got the thickest Chicago accent you'll ever hear. My grandfather, for example, he's never said a TH in his life, ever. <laughs> uh, and, was, and that's the truth. It's <laughs> funny because... Uh, Edie McClurg, who's uh, plays the secretary, says that that's exactly what got her. The part was how well she did the the Chicago accent, and I didn't hear it. But. No, I didn't think she had a very authentic sounding Chicago accent. But uh, I always assumed she just got it from being on the casting couch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you know what I'd like to do. Bang. She's got a great Chicago O face. Yeah, she can hide <laughs> other things in her hair besides pencils. So, yeah, uh, you know she was at, she was very well cast. I think for the role, I think she played the role of the the bumbling uh, yet wise cracking secretary quite well. And she was a nice compliment to Edward Rooney, but she's she's fine. <laughs> she she is as we said everybody's neighbor, and so why not cast her as a secretary? Yeah, but. Ferris Bueller comes out in 1986, is that right? Yeah, it comes out June 13th of 1986, the same day as Back to School with Rodney Dangerfield and The Manhattan Project with John Lithgow. It was released also the same month as Arnold Schwarzenegger's Raw Deal, Space Camp, Karate Kid Part 2, Legal Eagles, and Running Scared. It grossed uh, just over $70 million, was the 10th highest grossing film of 1986, right behind Aliens, The Golden Child, and Ruthless People, and right in front of Down and Out in Beverly Hills, The Color of Money, and Stand By Me. Hmm. I'm going to throw you a curveball. Uh, do you know what, uh, how, how this ranks as far as success, as far as money, on uh, John Hughes films? It's one of the most, I want to say it's the most successful John Hughes film, other than Home Alone, if you're talking about directed projects. Yeah, I think that's right. I do seem to remember hearing that this was the, let's look that up real quick. Unless anyone can look that up real quick. He wasn't even prepared with the answer to his own question. Oh, no, no, it, just, it just hit me. As it yes, that. I will accept your answer as truth, because I have no contradictory information. <laughs> It definitely grossed more than 16 Candles and uh, Breakfast Club. Home Alone, top grossing in 1990. Now, uh, that's the one he wrote. Are we just talking about the films he directed or he wrote? 
Okay. Both. He didn't. He didn't direct very many. He's only directed a handful. Of what eight yeah. films? It looks like. Yeah, he directed Sixteen Candles, Breakfast Club, Weird Science, Curly Sue, this one, um, Plane Strains and Automobiles, Plains. Uncle Buck, and she's having a baby. Yeah, there was only like it's, seven or eight films. Yeah, his last directorial um, movie was 1991 with Curly Sue. Sue. So. Yeah, and it got so critically panned, he didn't want to direct anymore. What was Curly Sue about? I can't remember now. It's uh, with uh, Jim, Jim Belushi. Belushi. And the little girl that he kind of picked Oh, her. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> very. She was, she very was cute. She was precocious. Yeah. Sure. It was another spin at Home Alone with a little girl, basically. Yeah. All right. Well, I can't find. Uh, it didn't. It didn't really. It just gave me the top grossing. It didn't give me a list that I wanted. But anyway. All right. So so there with a lot of uh, well, a lot of summer films really. Yeah, there was a lot of good films in the Aliens, Golden Child, uh, even Ruthless People was a big movie for its time. So. Right. Well, this comes out in. 86 and give you an idea of what's going on there. The Rogers Commission uh, released its report on the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster uh, right before the film uh, comes out and uh, they determined it it did in fact blow up. (laughs) (laughs) Len Bias suffers a fatal heart attack fatal, sorry, fatal cardiac arrhythmia from cocaine two days after being selected uh, second overall by the Boston Celtics. Um, Oprah Winfrey, her show debuts uh, in Chicago. In Chicago, that's right. Uh, Ferris made it popular. Harpo Studios. And uh, Madonna's True Blue album is released uh, this month, and Live to Tell is the number one song that beats out Greatest Love of All by Whitney Houston, which beat out West End Girls by Pet Shop Boys. Well, there's a lot of cocaine-related people in that. (laughs) Music still sucks in the 80s, man. Jeez, I am blown away at how bad music is every time, how good the films are that come out, and how bad the music is. NBC is currently king in 86 with Cosby Show, Family Ties, and Cheers all topping the uh, the sitcom. So there you go. That's 86. All right. So John Hughes' Ferris Bueller's Day Off. What uh, do, do we know? What what other films had he done? Had John Hughes done before this? Directed? Sure. He well, direct- let's go written to because he vacations in there too, right? Oh, yeah, he. I mean, he had written vacation. Uh, he had directed Sixteen Candles and Breakfast Club. Um, I mean, yeah, Breakfast Club was the year before this. Another film taking place in Chicago and not really featuring the city so much because it took place just in a school. But there was that undercurrent of Chicago and the Breakfast Club too. Yeah, he. This the same year he directs Weird Science. That comes out in '86 as well. So. Um, he's he's pretty busy in 1986 entirely. But this is coming off off the hill heels of Breakfast Club, which is I mean I I know it's still huge now, but it was huge uh, when it came out, right? Breakfast Club or Ferris Bueller? Uh, Breakfast Club. I, I I don't. It wasn't that big a grossing film. Um, not uh, these films. I mean, 70 million was decent, but it wasn't like. It's not like uh, the Hunger Games or Twilight or any of that teenage shit that they have now, but it was it was sure. groundbreaking in its time that there was a lot of talk about it when it came out on video. Everybody was renting it. I, I remember everyone talking about Breakfast Club. It was it was he was kind of the teen voice for the, that generation. And I did think it was interesting. I read that supposedly he wrote this thing in six days. 
I, I find that very hard to believe. How long does it take you to write, okay, we have a parade scene. Okay, we have a museum scene. Okay, we have a b- baseball scene. It's just... It's, it's, well, I, the hard part, Patrick, is not just having those scenes. It's picking from all of the wonderful and amazing opportunities that Chicago provides, selecting the best ones to use in the movie. I mean, that that in and of itself would have taken much longer than six days. I'm, I'm impressed he was able to do it so quickly. <laughs> there was so much to choose from. Only Chicago really, for those who haven't been, a great city. Well, I, and, I, and I like Chicago, but only someone from Chicago could say that. So with a straight face. <laughs> Which is... I, it, Oh, go ahead, Chris. I was going to say, I only like it in the uh, summertime. When it's winter, you can have Chicago all to yourself. <laughs> I've never I've never been to Chicago. I've driven through it. That's it. That's what I got to contribute. <laughs> <laughs> I hear they have great museums. Um, but so that does bring us to the uh, – to talk about the main character in this film. And Bill pointed out, it, it is Chicago. No, yeah, no. I, I really think this movie is just—it's—it's uh, it's almost like let's. There are a lot of really cool things you can do in Chicago. It really is a neat city. It's not—it's big, but it's not big like New York is big. And you really can accomplish what they did. I mean, it's—you know—it would probably be a stretch to do it all in one day like they did, but not that much of one. I mean, it's—it's it's easy to get around and. Uh, there are lots of things to do, and I think it, it's a good backdrop, a good setting for a movie like this where you're kind of showcasing the the variety and the types of experiences you can have. Hey, you know, and John Hughes had such a love affair with Chicago in all his yeah. films. Everything takes place in a suburb of Chicago, and obviously he had yeah. great affection for the film or for the, the city, and he, he interpreted that through his films. And uh, this more than any probably in any of his other films is that it is really a love letter to Chicago and that how much he cared for it and how much you can do. I disagree with Bill that it is probably something you can do in one day because they didn't ride the fucking subway at any point in time in this film. They got rid of their car and they walked everywhere. So I don't think they're they're walking up the Wrigley Field and then walking down to the museums and doing all the other well, crap. Just, be, just because they don't show them on the L doesn't mean they weren't taking the L. And you cannot get from downtown to the to Wrigley Field without taking the L. And so I think there's just, you know, the movie isn't a real-time shot of the entire day. Just because you don't see them on the train doesn't mean they didn't take the L to get places. You have to to get around the city. But that's the beauty of it. There's an L stop literally right outside the right field wall of, of Wrigley Field. And you can take an L from downtown up to Wrigley Field in 15 minutes, hop off the train, you're at the stadium, catch a couple of uh, innings of the game, get back on the L, zip back downtown, and, you know, 20 minutes later, you're at the museum, the Art Institute, right downtown where they saw the paintings. So... You know, whereas they didn't show them on the L, you can't get around without taking it. And it's kind of, I think, unstated and assumed that they were getting around with public transportation. No, no and I agree with that. But I also think that, like, the L is also part of Chicago. I mean, it is an institution of Chicago and that that they they show the nicer, finer points of Chicago and they don't show some of the, the grittier parts. They go to Wrigley Field instead of Comiskey at the time. You know, it's... Uh, it's nobody goes to Comiskey. There was nobody in the <laughs> mid-'80s taking in a Sox game in the middle of the day. The Sox rarely play in the weekday. Wrigley Field, especially at this time, 1986, uh, Wrigley Field didn't have lights yet. Wrigley's first game with lights was 1988. And so this is even two years before, which means that of the 81 home dates that the Cubs played in 1986, 81 of them were during the day. So there's no question that they're going to show Wrigley as opposed to Comiskey. And that's precisely why he used the Cubs. He's a, John Hughes is a Sox fan, 
is a Sox fan and wanted to to do a Sox game, but they rarely play during the day, whereas the Cubs do, and so that's why they they picked that. Yeah, and little well, yeah. known fact that that year the Chicago Cubs at the eighty one home games lost eighty of them. <laughs> This is our, you know, this is not our. <laughs> one, of, one of these days, though. One, I mean, it's been, it's been forever, right? We're 104 years since our last World Championship. My grandfather hasn't even seen the Cubs win a World Series, and he, my dad has never been alive to see them in the World Series. It's got to happen eventually. We can't be unlucky for another century. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's entertaining, man. That's all I know when they lose. Yeah, Matt, I think we. The team they got this year, they might be. Anyway, go yeah. ahead, Matt. I think we beat that Sarah Jessica Parker to death there. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, let's talk about some of the other characters or the other actors in the uh, in the film and their characters specifically. Uh, that great drum, um, drama actor Matthew Broderick. Well, as the only other person besides Matt who was involved in the Glory podcast about a month ago, um, where we eviscerated. Uh, Matthew Broderick's acting skills in that film. This is in his wheelhouse. This is this is his. Uh, this is something he's completely capable of doing, and he's very he's very capable of portraying a, a teen actor. I, I really like the acting style. I really like breaking the fourth wall and talking to the audience. Not a lot a lot of actors could be comfortable doing that. And I like him doing that in this film. I like him in this role. He's perfectly cast, and I think he's great in it. As compared to Glory, which he was a big floating turd so and, and most things other than than this really and and i thought it was interesting that they they specifically cast him because of his stage work in the neil simon plays uh well, brighton beach memoirs where he does basically this character he's addressing the audience he's narrating as he as he goes and so this was not a departure at all for what he had been doing very successfully on broadway but I agree. I think he did incredibly well in this. And some of, you know, he, he's clearly not one of those actors that you look at the body of work and you're just like, wow, he was great in so many movies. You kind of look at it and you're like, yeah, he was good in this one. He was good in that one. And the rest are kind of average to below average. He's got some really, really great. I thought like in The Producers, he was in his wheelhouse, too. You know, that was like a character almost made for Matthew Broderick's acting style. And I think he was great here. But, yeah, by and large, uh his career is just kind of middle of the road. And he is good in this because a, a different actor uh, could have made this character very unlikable. Uh, you know, he's a kind of a spoiled brat. He's a bit of a smart mouth, whatever. He's, uh, Matthew Broderick's able to pull off kind of this sarcasm with a little bit of sweetness, so he's likable. But otherwise, He's charming. He's incredibly he charming. charming in this movie. There wasn't any arrogance in it, I think, no. is how he could pull it off. No, yeah, I, mean, I, I agree. He looks young, too. He's got, even you know, even though in the movie he's portraying a senior in high school, he's still got that real boyish face, and there's a couple of scenes where he makes this very sheepish, boyish grin, and so he almost is, like, portraying, it's, he's got, like, this childlike charm about him that I think endears you even more to the character. He doesn't come across as this cocky, arrogant person, like you're saying, even though he really is. I mean, he owns the world and he knows it. He's got the school in the palm of his hand, his family in the palm of his hand, but you still like him nevertheless. But I even like him at the beginning. He's a little self-deprecating, basically saying, but I don't have a car. I might right. as well be a loser because I don't have a car. So I, they, they do a pretty good job with, with all that. Specifically, Matthew Broderick pulls it. Yeah. Um, how about yeah, his He's a pretty well-rounded character for this thing only being written in six days. And, and there's a lot of dialogue. He's able to, to do kind of those, uh, well, the monologue 
rather. Um, he's got a lot of that. That and so for for it also being written in six days, I do like uh, I do like his. Uh, his monologues, basically. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that his and like Patrick brought up that breaking the fourth wall, uh, a lot. You know, again, taking like Charlie Sheen for example, who had the bit part as the drug addict. Charlie Sheen would have destroyed this movie if he had played the Ferris Bueller role. Uh, Matthew Broderick was just perfectly cast and, and played it really well. Charlie would have brought too much Tiger to the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I do like how they say, yeah, Charlie Sheen stayed up for 48 hours in order to get that look. Yeah, that's what we call a, dr- a drug binge. <laughs> I'm, I'm betting that's true, but I'm betting that wasn't <laughs> a stretch for him. Well, it was, yeah, he was staying up anyway. I mean, he was right. all staying up for 48 hours. and He's like, oh, yeah, I got to shoot. That's right. <laughs> they're like, can you stay up for 48 hours? He's like, all right, just give me six more hours. Right. <laughs> How about uh, Sloane or uh, Mia Sarah, who plays the who plays Sloane, uh, Ferris's girlfriend? You know, it was funny because you look at she was in Legend, which was kind of a big film, not a big <laughs> film, but it was, you know, it was that. That was a summer film. It was a good film. You know, it was kind of in the same vein of Labyrinth, though a little bit better than Labyrinth or The Princess Bride. These fantasy fairy tale type films, right? And she was it's good. fantasy if it has dwarfs. That's that's sure. her. Our standard now. Yeah, and then she does this, and then you look at the rest of her her filmography, and there's just nothing there. And it's she had Time Cop. What are you talking about? Time Cop. (laughs) He's a cop that travels through time. Yeah. Yeah. You look at the the four things it says she's known for on IMDb, and it's this Legend, Time Cop, and Jack in the Beanstalk, the real story from 2001. Those are her four big roles, (laughs) and she's been working consistently since this film. It's not like she's got years and years of time off. It looks like she's in a movie just about every year, sometimes multiple movies, and they all suck. Well, she she is a stick. I mean, she's the worst part of this film with with the three of them. Uh, kind of out and about. She almost—I I don't see her as adding anything. Yeah, she's a pretty face. Yeah, she—she yeah, well, she was a pretty face, and she was '80s hot. So she works. Yeah. She plays the role well. Yeah, she is. She is '80s hot, but um, but yeah, but I, I again felt she added nothing. Uh, it was a bit boring, but it's a shame Mila Kunis wasn't old enough to do this part. Oh, she would have been perfect. Although, in fairness, I mean, in all honesty, I don't think of anything she. She shouldn't be in. I think yeah, she that's true. Everything. <laughs> she could just stand there for two and a half yeah. hours. I'd watch her in three D. Yeah. Where was Jennifer Connelly? She was in the right age for this time, so she could have played. You played and your Jennifer Jennifer Connelly fetish, man. Yeah, I'm telling you, I loved her in the eighties. I loved her in the nineties. I still love her now. <laughs> She's hot now. She aged much better than Mia Sarah. That's yeah. true. Huh. So you come now to Cameron, right? Alan Ruck, who uh, I was blown away uh, to learn that he was 29 years old when they filmed this. Yeah, just finishing his third year of law school, I believe, is what he was doing. So. Wow. No, he was uh, he was on, he was in uh, Biloxi Blues with uh, Matthew Broderick right before he did on, this film. So he on, was, on the movie or in, on stage? On the stage. Yeah, on, on the stage, stage there, actually. And that he was actually friends with uh, Matthew Broderick, and um, that, that helped him get the role in the film because they already had this friendship relationship. But apparently it was originally cast for somebody else. Emilio Estevez. That's right, man. Tiger Blood's brother. (laughs) (laughs) And he went on to do something else instead. Did you read that? I I don't know what he went on to do. I 
I know he said he didn't like the role, and I remember I watched uh, one of the making of documentaries where Alan Ruck talked about how when they were on Young Guns 2 that he talked about how Emilio talked about how the role just wasn't right for him, and Alan Ruck was like, "Yeah, I don't care. I'm fine. I got it. That's that's all that matters to me." So, <laughs> well, and I think I think Emilio's right. I don't Absolutely. think he would have been good in this role. I think that Alan Ruck did a great job of playing the sidekick to Matthew Broderick, where he's not drawing any attention away, and he is allowing uh, Matthew Broderick and Ferris Bueller to be top dog and. He's kind of the side partner. Emilio Estevez had been in some stuff. He was a little bit more known. He'd done the Breakfast Club and Santa Elmo's Fire the year before. I think he probably would have taken something away from uh, the Ferris Bueller character had he been in it. Yeah, and Anthony Michael Hall was also offered the role um, but turned it down because he was afraid of top typecasting because he had played that kind of sidekick, nerdy, somewhat nerdy yeah. character to this point in time in all the John Hughes films. And he went on to do uh, Johnny Be Good, so trying to break out of that role, that typecasting. Yeah, that worked out pretty well for him. <laughs> Talking about him being the sidekick, uh, the one thing in watching it back again that I hadn't really paid attention to is how he is the focal point, not just at the end through the father issues or whatnot, but actually through the whole film. No, it is almost like Ferris trying to get his buddy Cameron to have a good day. Right. It, that's exactly what it is, and he is the reason for the film even to, uh, to happen. Uh, so I, like I said, is it more as an, an adult view? I thought that was kind of uh, kind of an interesting observation. That, that was interesting to me in, in something new I, I caught rather than just, hey, here's a couple guys going, you know, ditching school basically, or a guy ditching school in order to have fun. It really shows – it does two things. It shows um, – it, it, it adds a depth to Cameron that I didn't really get before because I'm seeing the arc. But then it also adds depth to Ferris because it shows him as a really genuine friend. Well, if you uh, look at the context of this film, um, everybody loves him because Ferris is always going to do something for them. It's going to get him out of summer school or, you know, just whatever. He's always helping other people. Um, you know, to better whatever it is in their life. So I, I wasn't really shocked that uh, th that the theme was this day off was all for Cameron to show him a a good day because this is in Ferris's nature. That that's what Ferris does. Well, you know, and it, and it's interesting that Matt had brought up that point um, before we went on air, and and I and I thought it was really interesting because. I, I saw Ferris as kind of the the son to all these other characters that everybody's kind of revolving around him, and he doesn't change that much from the beginning of the film to the end of the film. But all the other characters go through a character arc. Even uh, the Mia Sarah character has a slight uh, character arc, but his sister obviously has a major change. Cameron has a major change, and you know it's it's interesting that he's the protagonist that influences all this change in everyone else. And I agree with Chris's point of view that everything. Outside of the main storyline, all the characters at school are he's doing things for them and that he influences this kind of uh, or he has this kind of influence on everyone's life is, is, is kind of interesting. One of the things I find interesting about this film is and it's I'm going to kind of spoiler alert here my uh, my review. I think it's OK. I think it's a bit overrated and, and people um, again, it's a bit insisting, but. Um, people really view this as the best John Hughes film that's out there. I mean, it is incredibly beloved, and I'm wondering what you all think the basis for that is. Why it's beloved? Yeah, well, first of all, do, is it one of your favorites, or do you think it, it is actually one of the best? And then why do you think it's so beloved? 
Well, I do. I I think it's a great movie. I think that there's a lot of uh, it's a fun movie. You've got a good character development with Ferris. Uh, again, I'm biased because of the Chicago aspect of it, uh, but it, it kind of is this free spirited movie. Uh, the fact that Ferris, one of the the best lines that has come out of this movie that's been repeated over and over and over again is, "Yep, I said it before and I'll say it again." Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. And that's the that's the theme of the movie. It's this movie that's hearkening back to a, a let's forget about all of the crap that we have to deal with. And every so often, take time off from work or school or whatever and just enjoy life. And uh, I think that there's that fun, lighthearted uh, escapist message to the movie that is part of the charm of the movie itself and uh, you know the story again is not complex but it's not intended to be it's more intended to be there's a lot of fun stuff that you can do and experience in life and go and do it and enjoy it yeah i have to agree with some of the things bill says that of, of all the john hughes films that i you know i I would put this probably my third or fourth favorite. I, my favorite is Breakfast Club, followed by Sixteen Candles, and then that's either this. And I actually love She's Having a Baby. I know a lot of people don't, but this one's pretty close to that. But it is the most fun of all the John Hughes films that I can that he directed. Um, that it, it, it's just you know just teenagers at play, and they're not really although they're dealing with s some serious issues, they're not really dealing with them head on as they're doing in Breakfast Club and Sixteen Candles. And it, it's just a lot of fun to watch, and I think that's what has that's why it is so beloved, and that's why it's carried over a couple generations. Is it's just it's just you know it's just it, it literally is just taking a day off. No, I I love this movie. It's it's not my favorite of them. I I am with you. I like the Breakfast Club much better, but um, it's it's a nice, fun, safe movie. I mean, other than a, I think there's a couple f bombs. You know, it's relatively clean. It's a movie for everybody that they can uh, watch it you know so i can see why everybody likes it. it's a very quotable movie in just about every aspect of this i, I definitely don't think it's the best i like 16 candles probably the best uh, followed by breakfast club and i might even put weird science over this film oh my uh, god oh my yeah. weird <laughs> science is a great one i i could see that yeah it, i mean i just like the quirkiness of that and we'll review that at some point but what i i guess my problem with it is exactly what you guys were saying is it's just kind of a a fun film it's, it has it, it's bubblegum to me it's it's kind of more of a greeting card whereas 16 candles i i think does a great job of telling how uh high school what high school is really like breakfast club then tells a story and tells you exactly what high school is not like but it does at least provide a this this kind of overblown idea of cliques and and individuals and and, and issues with with high school in, in, in a fairly adult unrealistic form but yet it tells a really interesting compelling story with those characters and so this just is just kind of fun and it's and it's got funny lines and it is very quotable and so that's why i I do think it's it's overrated because I don't think the story itself is all that uh, compelling or even the message at the end of the day, okay, stop and look around a little bit. 
great. Yeah. Well, but I think it, on top of that, though, this movie is also about relationships, and we've already talked about like the relationship between Cameron and Ferris, and this friendship, and the relationships that Ferris has with all these people that he helps. There's the uh, the current, the underlying current between Ferris and his sister and the the sibling rivalry that exists there and the reconciliation at the end. There's the reconciliation at the end of the movie between Cameron and his father, even though it's unseen, you know. Maybe. You know, you right, but the 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 movement toward that and that the Cameron is finally embracing the troubled relationship he has with his parents, all of which is fueled by this experience of this day that they have. And the See, but I- enjoy life focus on the things that are important in life yes but enjoy it all along uh, so i think that there is this duality in this movie that you're kind of uh, i think looking past a little bit and uh, looking just to the fun aspect of it at the and again the plot is certainly not complex but there is more to it than just uh, again the what we talked about before the postcard of the city view see but the relationship between the sister that has always bothered me it seems like they punt on it and and it feels very um sitcom-y where you know, let's wrap this up at the end. There was really no basis for why she'd come around at the end. It just, it just kind of happened. So, well, I, no, I, I disagree because again, at the end of the movie, it becomes uh, it was always Rooney against Ferris and Genie against Ferris. And at the end of the movie, when it became Rooney against Genie, Genie sided with her brother, and it became this familial bond that brought her together against a common enemy. And it wasn't it just wrapped up in a neat bow because they wanted to end the movie, but it was that they all of a sudden had this alliance with one another against a common foe that was someone who plagued both of them. And so I don't, I don't think it was necessarily just forced, I guess, if you want to call it that. I think that there was uh, something that, that tied it together in the the common enemy of Edward Rooney. Yeah, I thought it was really unfulfilling, and they could have they if that that's the move they were going, they could have kind of uh, they could have done something better to to develop that uh, a little bit. Another the other thing I'm I've always been annoyed at, and I was annoyed at again this time, and this is where Ferris just becomes the dick. Is he gets the girl with the Ferrari, and he insists, "Well, we're not taking it back because if you had access to this car, would you take it back?" Of course not. And then, rather than driving around the car, they just deliver it to a parking garage, and that's it. So there's no point in the car. So he create they create this conflict again. It's just it's manufactured uh, conflict. That goes back to being in Chicago where everybody takes the L. Right. I've always been um, surprised about that. I thought that the the fry should never really have played anything into it other than having to pick up Sloan. No, no I, but I think I they needed yeah, they needed the Ferrari though to to create the culminating conflict between Cameron and his dad and all the mileage oh, yeah. and sure. the destruction and so Sure, and that's but that's where this this is where the six days starts kind of revealing itself because yeah. A different conflict could have been developed uh, a little better. And there again, I thought he punted on that. And that has always bothered me. And it's also degraded Ferris and the, the, the Ferris character in my mind because there, there he's creating unnecessary conflict and, and angst for his friend who's, you know, it, it undercuts the idea of, oh, I'm doing this for, for Cameron. And he certainly wasn't intentionally putting Cameron in that position. So uh, I don't. I don't like that plot point uh, at yeah, all. I, that. I will say, though, that you know the, the high school was where it was filmed was in New Trier High School, which is up in uh, Northfield and Winnetka, north side of town. So it's not like they're in downtown we're at school and they drive you know two miles away i mean there's uh-huh. there is a drive he had the car for a little bit there and back so it wasn't just you know i i agree though the whole aspect of of the car was probably not the strongest part of the movie though it's it's a sweet looking car 
that was a nice car. Apparently, it was all models. They they weren't actually they were able to to rent one in order to take a picture of it, and then they kind of spliced it in, is what I read, because nobody was allowed to they weren't allowed to use it. Nobody was allowed to touch one. But uh, so those were all kits, which I thought was was kind of interesting. So how about a remake on this? Do we want to remake it? We, should we? Should there be a sequel? They've talked about a sequel forever. It did. It did spawn a, a pretty crappy TV show. Well, they uh, did. They just did the remake uh, in the <laughs> Super Bowl commercial this last year with the Honda CRV replacing right, right. the Ferrari. Which and Matthew the- Broderick looked very tired in that commercial. I say retire it. Yeah, I, I don't know who you would find that would uh, bring the same kind of charm to the character and uh, in, in today. You know, who are you going to have Channing Tatum play the role? I mean, there's just I, I don't know if you. <laughs> I don't know if you can find someone who would Jonah Hill. Yeah, right. Michael Sarah. You know, that's um, probably who they would pick. Michael Sarah. Yeah, because Michael's a very safe one. Oh, hi, hi Sloane. Um, would would you like to come with me so that we? You know, I mean, I don't. They, they, I don't think they should touch it. But do you think they will? No. If there's money to be made. Yeah, I think it's inevitable before this before they start rolling out these John John Hughes films, or are these untouchable? Well, you know, years ago I would have said, yeah, I thought it was a good idea to make it. But once John Hughes died, if he wasn't going to be involved with it, to give kind of the different perspective on where Ferris is at this point in life, I don't think he would do it. Um, Matthew Broderick has always said that he wouldn't do it because it, sh- it told a specific tale for a specific time. And, it, you know, to kind of come back and visit the character now would kind of tarnish uh, whatever you're going to have because whatever – Whatever we view as the audience view Ferris, what, what he would be doing today is not going to live up to what the film would do. But then he went and did that fucking commercial, and you know it just creates a lot of more talk that he would even kind of poke fun at it. it means that possibly if the money was money was there, he might do it. I hope they don't. I you know I I I love this movie enough that I I would have liked. I thought of all the John Hughes films, it's the one that I thought they could make a sequel of. You know, Ferris taking a day off work for a change to do something. Something with his kids, I, I, I could see the premise where you could possibly make it effective. But um, once Jen, John Hughes died, I was like, I, I'm less interested in somebody else trying to pick it up and take it from there. What about a remake, though? Do you think they that's something they they'll try to do? I'm generally against most remakes, especially if the film, the original film, works so well. Why would you want to even mess with that? Because you're you're, you're dragging all that baggage in. A film that doesn't work so well, you know, a crappy film. Yeah, go ahead and remake that. And do it. Do it in a way that is more effective. But a film that's successful, a film that audiences love, and you know, you, you don't hear about remakes of Gone with the Wind. You don't hear about remakes of Star Wars. It's because they don't need a fucking remake. So that's. Yeah, I, I'm against remakes in general. Yeah. I could see them remaking Breakfast Club before this one. That would translate a little bit better. Yeah, I agree with you, Chris. Is that's the one I think they try to pull off, you know, and, and update it and, and modernize it, and you know, find also, the gay kid and the and whatever, you know, it's kind of the modern problems, right? They'd make a Glee with auto tuning up the wazoo. <laughs> yeah. But also, one of the other films that they've, uh, I've actually just within the last year, I've heard them talking about creating a sequel with those actors and those characters again although i think the premise of that one is even more far-fetched to try to bring back bring back those five characters to have you seen how old and busted ali sheedy and molly ringwald is (laughs) jeez all right well let's break down ferris bueller I'm going to tell you for exactly the reason you said, Patrick. I think it stands the test of time that it does in watching it back is uh, it was well done. It's not dated at all. 
and I, I don't think they should touch it specifically because this stands the test of time. It's not my favorite John Hughes, uh, but it's it's still entertaining. How about you, Bill? Yeah, no, this is my favorite John Hughes film. I uh, I love this movie. Have always loved this movie. I I watch it frequently and repeatedly and. Uh, I, I think that the characters are charming and witty and fun. I, I like the plot to the extent that there is one. And again, it doesn't try and do too much, and it doesn't try and uh, oversell itself. It's just a fun, charming movie uh, with some interesting, neat character developments and dynamics between them. And again, you got to love Chicago and the whole thing. So definitely stands the test of time. Do you think your love for Chicago is what causes you to like this film as is your favorite oh, sure, film? Or Ferris sure. I think it has, I, I think it plays a big part in it. Had it been set in, you know, but again, th this is not the kind of movie you could just set anywhere. You could do it in a big city, but you can't have Ferris Bueller's day off in Kansas city, you know? So, um, yeah, no one goes I, to Royals sure games. <laughs> I don't know, dude. I saw Jack Bauer travel so much distance in an hour <laughs> in L.A. You can do it anywhere. That's true. That's true. <laughs> With the magic of television and movies, I suppose. That's right. No, and I, again, I, uh, you know, I, I don't live in Chicago anymore, but every time I go back, there are just, you know, it is a great city. Uh, it was a great place to grow up. I still absolutely love it, and I'm uh, an ambassador for the city in many respects. And uh, so I'm sure that does influence my opinion to a certain extent, but it's still a great film. Yeah. How about you, uh, Patrick? Um, I like this film, although, as I said, it's my probably my third favorite uh, John Hughes film. Uh, most of his films, uh, with the, probably the exception of Curly Sue, I really enjoy. I think they're all well-made films. They're very entertaining. I do think it stands the test of time. This this probably more than uh, the other films, I think, really does ro uh, bring me back to early high school for me. This is something that came out during my freshman year or the summer between before my freshman year. You know, I envisioned wanting to be someone like Ferris Bueller or something like that. You know, popular in school and things like uh, things like that. So I, it it really does cause me to reminisce about you know kind of my teen years and everything like that. So that's why I like Ferris Bueller, and I still think that it communicates that very well today. That you know this this joy of being a teenager and the joy of just kind of kind of on that threshold of being adulthood where you can go and do almost anything you want and taking advantage of life while you're still young. I think it has a universal message it's still you know it's still still poignant today so yeah i do think it stands the test of time chris uh yeah i, I like this one if it gets a little slow for me in the middle kind of loses me a tad bit if it hadn't done that it would probably be my favorite of the john hughes movies but um that still goes to breakfast club you know i this will stop me on a sunday i'll sit there and watch it all day and uh it's pretty much just like patrick said it brings me back to uh, my high school years because this came out the same time I was about to start high school as well and uh, that's you know that's what I think about the beginning of my high school years well that's it for today's classic episode of lunchtime movie review please let us know what you think of the film in the comments section on our website and rate it from one to five stars on that page as well if there is an 80s film you'd like us to review, please send us an email at comments at moviehousememories.com with your name, your pick, and your location. And finally, if you are of the social media persuasion, you can look the MHM Podcast Network up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you do, please give us a follow when you find us. On behalf of the whole gang here at Lunchtime Movie Review, thanks for tuning in, and until next time... We have to get out of here, and you guys are invited.
This podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme song for Lunchtime Movie Review, Fireworks, is brought to you by Alexander Nakarada at SerpentineSoundStudios.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of Lunchtime Movie Review, the MHM Podcast Network, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise, nope.